0: Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Fair Folk is a radio show and podcast exploring folk culture and music from around the world. This show is hosted by Smithers Community Radio, CICK 93.9 FM, and you can find it at smithersradio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Malevolent or helpful, pinched and small, or beautiful beyond description, elves are a mainstay of Western folk belief. Today we're exploring the many manifestations of that belief, delving deep into the folklore of the British Isles and Scandinavia, the two regions where elves have been most robustly presented. This episode also features an interview with Terry Gunnell from the University of Iceland, you just heard a song called Olaver Ridaros" by Valraven, a Faroese band. And in this song, Sir Olaf is riding in the mountains and he comes upon an elfin maid who invites him to come sing for her friends as they dance. He says he can't, since he's going to get married the next day. The elf maid offers him a drink before he departs, and he drinks it, not knowing she has poisoned his drinking horn. He becomes very ill and shortly dies. The Sir Olaf ballad is known in Danish as Elveskud. Elf shot. Elf shot is a phenomenon also attested occasionally in Old English manuscripts. These records indicate that in Anglo Saxon England, at least some people attributed illnesses of unknown cause, especially those affecting cattle, to the cruel intentions and invisible arrows, or venom, of elves. Our modern view gives the erroneous impression that medieval cultures had conspired at some point to give us a unified image of the creature called elf, when in fact they have never agreed on what exactly an elf is. Even the word creature in this case is misleading, since creature implies created by God, and the word elf is usually set in opposition to Christian categories of being. Whether playing with the fates of humankind, or stealing them for partners, seeking assistance in childbirth or hosting forbidden dances, whether they are protesting urban development, assisting shoemakers, spooking livestock, or inspiring cosplay festivals, elves are always doing things that humans can or should not do. Across time and space, the elf has represented a realm of existence outside of human experience, typically intersecting with our world, only in the narrowest corridors and on the darkest nights. It's not at all surprising, then, that elves appear to the young, the disabled, women, and other people who experience limitations to their mobility in the human world, when elven is everything we cannot be, because the nature of our world and our societies preclude it. We should remember that the people we might gaslight as crazy for believing the existence of elves are the same people we might easily dismiss for other reasons social, economic, or aesthetic. It's like that joke why do aliens only abduct crazy people? Because you've already decided that people who believe in aliens are crazy. Accounts of human encounters with elves who offer a romantic invitation or a threat comprise the majority of the ballads concerning elves in Scandinavia and the rest of Europe including the British Isles. In the Scottish ballad The Elfin Knight, a young woman encounters a trumpet-playing elf knight on the heath. He enchants her with his magic horn, and she falls in love with him. He then lists a series of impossible tasks, like sewing a linen tunic without stitches, and washing it in a dry well, that she must complete in order to win his hand in marriage. She cleverly responds with her own riddle-like requests, and the elf, seeming satisfied, accepts her proposal. This is Mary O'Hara's delightfully witchy rendition of The Elfin Knight. time for the Fair Folk Almanac, a calendar of forgotten holidays to help you get your feast on. Tuesday, February 28th, is the Christian celebration of Shrove Tuesday, also known as Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday is a day of feasting prior to the beginning of Lent on the following Wednesday. Lent is a 40-day fast in imitation of the 40 days Jesus Christ spent in the desert, enduring temptation from Satan. During Lent, Christians will give up something they enjoy, such as sugar or meat, in order to prepare themselves for Easter at the end of the six-week period. In many places, Shrove Tuesday is a day to consume pancakes, and in some regions of Ireland these pancakes were reportedly used in divination. The eldest girl, it said, of the household would flip the first pancake, and if it landed well, she would have luck in finding a mate that year. The cake was then shared, sometimes containing a hidden wedding ring. The person who found the ring, much like the person to catch a bouquet at a wedding, will be the first married of the group. On March 1st, the ancient Romans celebrated matronalia. This festival venerated Juno Lucina, who was the goddess of childbirth. Prior to Julius Caesar's calendar reforms, this was the first day of the new year. Not much is known about how exactly this occasion was celebrated, except that we know women took part in rituals at the temple to Juno Lucina, where they were required to wear their hair down, which was very unusual at the time, and they wore no belts or knots in their clothing that day. I can only guess that means this was intended to somehow increase the possibility of childbirth in that no things on their person were bound, therefore something might pass through. At home, women prepared a meal for their slaves, if they had any, and received gifts from their husbands and daughters on this day. The moon will be new on February 26th, and this has been Your Fair Folk Almanac. This next ballad from Norway tells the tale of a girl who becomes pregnant with the elf king's child after she drinks enchanted wine that makes her lose her memory. This is Kirsten Breitenberg with Liddy Kirsti og Elvekongen. This is Old News, where I share discoveries and happenings in history studies, archaeology, folklore, and folk music. This week in Old News, researchers from the Hebrew University and the Israel Antiquities Authority have discovered a twelfth cave near the caves containing the famous Dead Sea Scrolls in modern-day West Bank. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which are believed to have been hidden as much as 2,000 years ago, comprise 981 manuscripts in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek containing texts of enormous historical, religious, and linguistic importance. The researchers found a scrap of parchment in this new cave, yet to be analyzed, as well as broken jars like those found in the other caves. They believe this one was plundered in the 1940s, as modern pickaxes were left behind as well. Fans of the fantasy genre will be pleased to hear that Philip Pullman, 17 years after publishing the groundbreaking His Dark Materials trilogy, is set to publish another trilogy in the same universe. The first book in the Book of Dust trilogy will focus on his former protagonist Lyra, 10 years previous, when she was a baby. Where it goes from there is anybody's guess. Thomas the Rhymer was known in the 13th century as a prophet from Earlston, Scotland. The ballad by that name is a condensed form of the lengthy romance detailing how he obtained the gift of prophecy, This version opens with Thomas lounging on a hillside, when a woman in fine clothing rides up to him. He said she must be the Queen of Heaven, dressed so beautifully, but she corrects him, saying she is in fact the Queen of Alfland, and invites him up on her horse with her. The horse runs faster than the wind, taking them to a starless desert far away, where they wade constantly through all of the blood ever shed in the human world, if you're ever wondering where that went. He is in this place for seven years and returns with the promised gift of prophecy. This is True Thomas by Christina Stewart. True
1: Thomas lay on Huntley back How fairly he spied we had he And that he saw a lady bricht Come riding to him by the eilden tree her skirt was o'er oh, the grass-green silk Her mantle o'er oh, the velvet fine A tail to a horses' reins, Hung fifty cellar bells a night True Thomas he put off his cap And louted low upon his knees Say hail to thee, Mary Queen of heaven For your peer on earth could never be Oh no, oh no, Thomas, she said That name does not belong to me I'm but the queen of fate of land that's hither come to visit thee Now harp and carp Thomas, she said Harp and carp, along with me For if ye dare to kiss my lips Shoot of your body I will be Well betide my wheel or betide me woe that weird shall never daunten me, and he has kissed her ruby lips all underneath the ilden tree. Now ye mun come wi me, she said, true Thomas ye mun come wi me, and ye mun serve me seven years through weal or woe as my chance to be. She's mounted up her milk-white steed And tamed Thomas up behind And I, whenever her bridle ride The horse ran faster than the wind And they raid on and further on The horse ran faster than the wind Until they came to a desert wide And living land was far behind It was mark, mark night There was nay starlight They've waded through red blood And either hand For all the blood that shed on earth Flows through the rivers of that land She's gained true Thomas a mantle grey, and gien him soon o'er the velvet green. And while seven long years were come and gone, true Thomas on earth was
0: never seen. It's simply not possible to estimate the magnitude of J.R.R. Tolkien's influence on the popularity of elves in today's media, but what we can discuss is what he added to the folklore. Tolkien took the concept of light and dark elves from Norse mythology and vastly expanded on their characteristics, giving them their own history and teleology. Tolkien is also apparently where elves got their pointed ears, though this fact is hotly debated among Lord of the Rings fans to this day. Tolkien invented such a rich world for his elves that for the young generation it has come almost to eclipse any other historical representation of elf life or appearance. Nevertheless, because of the deeply romantic and resonant effect he has had by expanding on this imagined race, the current situation is that not a moment goes by that somebody, somewhere, isn't writing or dreaming about elves. This is a song by Howard Shore in Tolkien's invented elvish language, Sindarin, sung in a western choral style this is the passing of the elves also known as the elvish lament This next song, one of those traditional ballads collected by Francis Child in the late 19th century, describes the plight of a woman who is taken from her own four-day-old son to serve as a wet-nurse to the queen of Elfland's child. In many traditions, women were seen to be especially prone to danger from elves after childbirth, a fact that can be seen in the belief that newborn children, if not watched carefully, might be stolen by elves or fairies, and replaced with changelings, an idea that has found traction in cultures across Europe. This might speak to the instinctual awareness we have that when giving birth, women stand at the crossroads between the human and the supernatural world. This is Rachel Newton with Queen of Elfland's Nurse. If you pay attention to the folklore news, you might have noticed there is a lot of elf-related reports coming out of Iceland. In fact, almost all elf news unrelated to Tolkien is Icelandic. This is because people in Iceland encounter elves with much greater frequency than other places in the world. Almost all elf encounters reported in Iceland are associated with modern development of some sort, usually road building or expansion, but construction or extension of houses or factories is also an occasion for the elves to interfere. Mechanical breakdowns, accidents, and warnings from dreams constitute some of the reasons that Hildafolk, as they are known, might make their displeasure known. Sometimes, if a company finds they are operating in an area occupied by elves, they simply will abandon the project, or they might put it off until a later date, when the elves will have moved house. If that's the approach they choose, some people have hired a psychic to determine if the elves have moved on or not, so that they can return to work in the area. The scene of departing Huldafolk has been described by more than one account as a line of individuals solemnly exiting their former home, which is often inside a hill, with their belongings in bundles slung over their shoulders. If this all sounds too whimsical to be true, consider a poll that was taken by the University of Iceland in 2007 that found 32% of people polled believed the existence of Alvar, as they are known, possible, 16% felt it probable, and 8% were certain of it, for a total of 56% positive response, which is rather significant as far as folk beliefs go. In the Middle Ages, there was still a distinction between alvar and nature spirits, or landvater, though the idea now is somewhere in between, with some elements of Gaelic elf belief thrown in. The main feature of the folk in Iceland, or alvar, that differentiates them from other beings conventionally called elves, is that they look just like normal people, for the most part, and they farm and pick berries, and go to church— and have law enforcement, just as visible Icelanders do. There are accounts, especially from Sweden, from earlier times, indicating clearly that the Alvar were on par with gods and their status, and were worshipped in the manner of a religious tradition, with, in some regions at least, yearly sacrifices. These rituals were called Alvablót. I spoke to Terry Gunnell, professor of folkloristics at the University of Iceland, about the special culture and history Iceland has around the Huldefolk. He was happy to oblige. As far as Icelandic elf belief goes, I understand there are a number of concepts elided in the term elves. I want to ask: when we're talking about elves, what are we talking about?
2: The uh, the original word that was used was was landvaitir and nautarvaitir, which means simply uh, nature spirits. The word alvord goes back to Viking times, but changes and finds itself being used instead of those words as time goes on, by uh, probably about 13, 1400. The other word that starts coming in in about 1500 is huldefolk uh, which means the hidden ones. It's the same as Norway has the word huldre and that's really simply it's a descriptive term a little bit like in Ireland where the little people are the good people. A way of mentioning them without actually calling them. It's a little bit like with Old Nick and Gamal for Satan. These two expressions are both used in Iceland nowadays. There's a slight difference in sense that if you ask children nowadays they're beginning to see a Tolkien like figure with pointy ears and being smaller than human size. But otherwise for most people they're the same size as us and if you bumped into a Hildenmar or a hidden person on the street you wouldn't notice any difference. And they probably have they've got a bit stuck in terms of image and where they live because of the folk tales being collected in the the 19th century. It's a little bit like a a sepia photograph of them. They're living inside rocks and hills in the countryside but so were other people living in rocks, something that looked like rocks and hills a little bit like hobbit houses in Iceland. Other people move into the city, and because the hidden people are are stuck with that image, then in a sense, it's like they're stuck wearing 19th century national costume because of the recording. Otherwise, they'd have gone on developing like everybody else. They'd have cars and mobile phones and satellite television and whatever else. I reckon probably, if if they live anywhere, they're probably living a little bit like in being John Markovich in between floors in blocks of flats. That would be the natural way for them to go on developing if the stories hadn't been collected earlier.
0: I've read that in Iceland, the nature of the way we see elves really changes based on the needs of the culture at that time. Can you comment on how elf belief has changed recently? I mean, as far as I know, they weren't causing trouble for road maintenance in the Middle Ages, for example.
2: The hidden people, in a sense, have become not just a personification of nature, but a sense of the old romantic view of nature, that they are environmentalists in many senses. You find them coming to be set up as a sort of opposition to damaging nature to uh, machinery a little bit again like the middle ages as opposed to modern times
0: so as you know J.R. R. tolkien is responsible for much of the recent interest in elves worldwide how much do tolkienian elves reflect modern icelandic elf belief
2: tolkien When he's creating the elves for Lord of the Rings and stuff, it's certainly going back to original sources, but he's going back to a much earlier level of Ølvar or elf than the sort of being that people in Iceland think about nowadays. He's going back to Viking times and uh, an earlier level, at which point the Ølvar were more like gods of some kind and certainly equal in status to the gods and the Jotnar who were called giants wrongly too. Later on, they start blending with nature spirits and become something else.
0: You've mentioned that you've been contacted a lot by journalists recently to talk about elf belief in Iceland. What would you say is the most common thing that non-Icelanders get wrong about elves in Iceland?
2: The immediate misconception is this sort of idea that sort of big-eared little people are dancing around rocks every Friday night with local people is, is what they immediately go for. Which is wrong in terms of size, is wrong in terms of clothing, and is actually quite a different thing. So that's the key mistake. And also the idea that Iceland is the only place to do this, where you find exactly the same sort of beliefs and the same approach to the landscape in Western Ireland. And you would have found the same sort of beliefs in Britain and throughout Scandin- well, Scandinavia, I would say back in the 1950s, Britain probably back to the, around the First World War is when the ideas start, they start disappearing. It's just lived on longer here.
0: And why is that?
2: It's partly a little bit like with Ireland, the fact that Iceland, first of all, didn't go through a strong pietistic movement, a strong Protestant movement, which tried to wipe out all folk beliefs. You find that right across Denmark and large parts of Norway and Sweden, where people were simply banned from telling their children about the beliefs they'd grown up with. Iceland never had that. In fact, the theology department of the university in the early years of the 20th century was was very interested in spiritualism and things of this kind. So... The other thing being that priests grew up. We keep on having the idea that priests in the 19th century all had a calling. In fact, becoming a priest is one of the few jobs that was available to anybody who was educated. You either went into government work or something of this kind, or you became a priest. So these people are learned people who grew up with countryside beliefs about nature. And then they read about the Bible and other things later on, but they were open to both in many ways. So these beliefs um, are brought into the present quite effectively because things have changed much more recently.
0: And the landscape is rather special in Iceland too, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. It's quite natural. People have this sort of sense about nature being alive because your house can be destroyed by something you can't see in the shape of an earthquake. You can feel it part of a second before it actually hits you. You look at the sky in the wintertime and you see you've got the biggest television screen in the world in the shape of the Northern Lights. You go out to the countryside and you can hear the hot springs bubbling. You go to a glacier, you can hear it grinding. And it gets dark very early in the winter time, so that landscape and snow and rain starts taking shapes. And if you're brought up with these sort of beliefs, you can they strengthen the earlier beliefs. Which, of course, are also a nice thing to bring children up with, a little bit like Santa Claus. It, it adds magic to the landscape and... There's nothing wrong with it, and if it makes children have a sense of showing respect for the landscape around them and a sense that you don't mess with it, that's not a bad thing.
0: Well, yeah, having grown up in the mountains of BC here, surrounded by all those large trees and masses of stone, it's really not hard to imagine that they might have some kind of spirit of their own that you could even maybe communicate with.
2: Exactly. these beliefs here go back to the Viking times, time of the settlement, and the church never managed to wipe them out. And, and of course, it's what Tolkien was trying to do when he wrote Lord of the Rings was to bring back this sense of wonder about the landscape that you look at a tree and you might imagine there's a tree beard inside it, a little bit like the the, the Native American groups have their sense for the landscape as being something that's got a, a, a greater depth to it, a greater power.
0: So in researching this show, I've come across a lot of these stories where somebody's going about their business and they're in the hills maybe and they encounter an elf and the elf is maybe trying to seduce them into marriage or to take them away somewhere with them and they have to use you know their Christian morals to defy temptation and uh, come home safe at the end of the day or maybe not. Can you tell me something about the origin of these stories?
2: So these, sort of, these stories are certainly pretty widespread. Um, the girls who are up in mountain dairies are lured away and have children with, with the hidden people who move into the dairy. There's partly an element of something charming about the other world, something exciting about it, something better, something more beautiful. The grass is always greener on the other side, so their world is always better than the sort of day-to-day hardship that people are living with. So there's a certain attraction about that other world, which is seen as being sort of slightly paradisical in many ways. Uh, The the story of relationships between um, the the hidden people and the elves and human beings, they might be stories that explain how people, why they disappear in the mountains. They might be stories of women who've been forced into marriage and just take a run for it um, and disappear as well. But um, this sort of story goes right back into um, pagan mythology of of stories of, of mixing of races and that not being a bad thing, necessarily. These elven guys certainly look a, a lot better than some of the farmers would have looked, probably, at that time. And they, they probably didn't wash their hair in urine like some people did at this time. for <laughs> So you can expect them to have been a little bit more interesting for the women. But uh, the difference is in Iceland that they aren't pagan. In Norway, certainly, the church has managed to work it that they have tails and they, they're sort of half bestial figures who are seen as being representatives of the old pagan world. In Iceland, they have their own churches and they certainly don't have tales, just look look like the rest of us. So they they even have their own, in both Norway and Iceland, there's talk about a a lost book of Genesis which talks about Adam and Lilith as having been a pair before Adam. Adam found Eve later on. Just that uh, Lilith was seen as being a little bit too interested in the physical side of things and uh, he got rid of her and they had children and their, their children were the hidden people. This is the story you often get there. So she becomes, in a sense, a, a sort of earlier mother figure. And then Eve takes over as more sort of biblical later on. She's more interested in fig leaves and things, apples and things of this kind. But but in, in Iceland, certainly, the Christian approach hasn't. There's not, not the same sort of conflict between the Christian belief and the, the world of the elves. So fantasy has really
0: exploded in popular culture lately, so much so that elves are almost like their own genre. Why do you think that is?
2: I think it's it's partly that there is a longing to go back to this mysticism that we grew up with as children with these stories. I often say to people who who do these interviews with me that it says more about them than it says about Icelanders, that there is a longing for um, mystery and something simpler about the world, which is getting very complicated, but stepping back into the Middle Ages, but simply this, this element of wonder, of the supernatural, which our physics classes have tried to wipe out, at the same time that they're starting to move gradually into sort of quantum physics, whereby you have multiple worlds living alongside each other, which isn't as close as you can get to theology, as far as I'm concerned.
0: No, that's true. And it's, it's interesting that, that this is off topic, but talking to some of my younger brother's friends about... What kind of world? What time are you talking about when you talk about this fantasy? Like fantasy, but fantasy is apparently like a time and a place. It's you know the Middle Ages with dragons. It's interesting though because it's seen as a distinct time and place now with this sort of the video game generation and the, and Tolkien being sort of normalized into popular culture. It's it's odd. <laughs>
2: It is, but in a sense that it's also the fairy tale world that we grew up with, in a sense. It's the more historical side of it. But this sort of world of princesses and princes and knights and horses and things of this kind. Horses are much more interesting than cars in many ways. Uh, They've got more personality. You've got it in Game of Thrones, you've got it in all of these Viking programs at the moment. You all go back to a sort of longing for a world in which a sword can answer problems. This sort of simpler world, but a world in which there are sort of gods and there are sorts of spirits out there that you try and communicate with. It's a very boring world without them in many ways.
0: noting that the image of elves is often mixed with that of fairies, especially in the Gaelic tradition, and especially in England since Victorian times. At that time, in the shadow of the Industrial Revolution, both elves and fairies came out in public while being domesticated in the popular imagination as a childish concept, along with many other elements of folklore and mythology, and relegated to so-called fairy tales, a term coined rather late in the fairy folk game, the 18th century, In Victorian and Edwardian times, elves and their counterpart, fairies, became associated with cultivated gardens and came to resemble a combination of children, insects, and flowers, the three living things possibly most aligned with a diminutive view of nature, a way of taming and reclaiming at the same time the vanishing rural traditions of reverence for the natural world. Fairies and elves moved into Edwardian culture with the Cottingley fairy photographs and Arthur Rackham's fairy tale illustrations. Before then, for a few hundred years in the British Isles, it seemed nobody much cared about the difference in appearance between fairies and elves, possibly because of the obvious fact that they were assumed to be invisible. Nowadays, when the difference between elves and fairies is basically wings, their appearance, as opposed to their behavior, is their most distinguishing feature. This next song is a dramatic one, and one of the many produced in that period of time in Scotland where the fairies and the elves were not so clearly distinguished from one another. Tamlin, though involved in supernatural events, is a mortal. However, he looks like an elf, and he's kept hostage by the queen of the fairies. He fears she will give him as a tithe to hell, so he plans with his lover Janet to escape the fairy queen's clutches on Halloween night, when everybody knows the elves and fairies go riding. Janet pulls him down from his horse as he passes, as planned, and the Fairy Queen transforms him into all sorts of animals in order to escape Janet's embrace. But she holds on tight, and eventually Tamlin is changed back into a man, and Janet and he are free to live their lives together, to the Fairy Queen's great displeasure. This is Fairport Convention, with... Tamlin.
3: I forbid you maidens all that wear gold in your hair to travel to Carter Hall.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Fair Folk. We have a lot of exciting shows coming up in March, including one on Norse neopaganism. Look out for that and have a great two weeks.